Welcome to the Telemer Emerging Markets podcast. My name is Hasnan Malik and I cover emerging markets equity strategy at Telemer. It's my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast Dominic Bocker Ingram from Fiera Capital. Dominic has over 30 years experience in the emerging markets game, and that means he was there pretty much at the dawn of the asset class. At Fiera, he co-manages their various emerging and frontier market equity funds. Dominic, welcome. Thank you very much, Hasan. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's start with a question that perhaps is not asked often enough, which is how do you define emerging markets in the first place? Um, yeah, I think this is a, a topic that's been left behind probably over the last 20 years. Um, the reason why anyone started investing outside the country that they were living in was to seek higher returns. And higher returns tend to come from higher economic growth. And so the history of emerging market investing, right back to the Latin American railroads in the 1870s, was um, trying to get access to a higher rate of return than in your home country, and uh, thereby probably taking a higher level of risk because you were not as familiar with those countries or those overseas countries as you were with your, your own market. So that's very much how I've seen emerging market investing over my career. And I think maybe where the deviation over recent years has come from between an emerging market investor who's trying to beat an index and an investor who has an opportunity set that is emerging market. And would you say that that challenge in this era is particularly difficult when it comes to persuading people to put money outside their home market? Is that particularly difficult when you're in discussions with US asset allocators and US investors just because of really two factors? I mean, one, the overwhelming dominance of the very largest tech companies uh, based in the US, which drive that equity market. And then also, particularly with relevance for a lot of the emerging and particularly the smaller emerging markets, the sort of privileged position of the US dollar with currency risk always having to be something that we always seem to have to worry about in, as I say, particularly the smaller emerging markets. I think the first part of that has been probably the biggest challenge. Um, I mean, if you look at something like 13 out of the last 14 years of equity market performance, um, you've been better off in the S&P than you have been in the emerging market index. So really the challenge is trying to get investors to look at emerging markets as an opportunity set rather than an asset class and trying to look at not the performance of EM versus the performance of DM or the US, but to look at within the emerging market universe, where are the opportunities and where are the, the growth opportunities? Um, the US dollar certainly plays a part in that. Um, and it's certainly been the case over most of my career that emerging market currencies have devalued versus the US dollar. And if you look at the evidence, it's probably around the inflation differential. Um, what should make emerging market investing much more attractive today and certainly in the last three or four years than it ever has done in, in the history of the so-called asset class is that you've got now a situation where inflation is actually lower in many emerging markets than it is in developed markets. And for that reason, using the same sort of methodology, you probably should see currency appreciation 
in emerging market currencies. Now, a lot of that has been held back by the safe haven status of the US dollar in the light of a lot of the geopolitical risks that have been going on in the last uh, three or four years. But at some point, I don't, I don't, I think that probably the laws of uh, economics and, uh, and, and inflation will come up against the safe haven status. And not just the safe haven status, but also the debt issue in the US and how much debt is now on the, uh, the Fed balance sheet. So I am, I think, probably for the first time in, in uh, my emerging market career, very sanguine about emerging market FX risks. I think there are individual risks. Um, and I think there are some countries that um, need to be avoided in, in the emerging market universe um, because of these FX risks and uh, inflation risks. But I think on the whole, um, I don't see the headwinds of emerging market currencies today that we have had for most of my career. Even in some of those countries where, as you say, there are still outstanding risks, do you get a sense that at least the institutional policy response has improved in terms of whether it's the willingness to engage with the IMF and the sort of policy orthodoxy that the IMF often attaches as conditions to, to loans it provides, or at least as a better understanding than let's say 10 years ago or 20 years ago in terms of what international investors need to see, um, particularly on the fixed income side in terms of good behavior on policy. So even though there are difficult parts of EM and Frontier, do you think at least some of the institutional response mechanism has improved? I think that's definitely the case. Um, I think the, uh, the, the 90s and the 2000s taught a lot of emerging markets that you can't just print money and uh, you can't just inflate your way out and that you have to um, stick to some form of, uh, whether it's austerity or improving tax collection or wh whatever it is that stops your balance sheet expanding and creating the hyperinflationary loops that we've seen in the past. Um, I don't think we've learned that lesson in the West yet, but I think large parts of emerging markets, and you just, just by looking at the debt profile of EM versus DM, you can see the lessons that have been learned. Not because I don't think policymakers have got smarter, but politicians probably have got smarter and understand the risks more um, of, of letting uh, debt pr uh, currency printing, um, money printing, and, uh, and letting debt run away. So I think it's been born out of uh, necessity. I don't think there's many politicians around who wouldn't print money if they could. But um, I think the lessons in, in emerging markets have been that uh, if you do print money, you're probably out of and so um, it's kind of put a block on the, on the level of money printing. And it's become, I think, institutionally and politically much more acceptable for countries to bring in austerity or to focus on tax collection rather than just to print money like they always did. Going back to, to one of your comments earlier about kind of how you define the opportunity, it sounds as if you really don't adhere at all to the definition provided by some of the large index providers out there like MSCI or FTSE in terms of what they consider an emerging market universe? I think that's definitely true. I mean, if you look at um, our two global long-only strategies in smaller emerging markets and frontier markets, um, they are 93 and 87% off benchmark. Um, it, it's, um, it's quite fascinating to follow the uh, inclusion and exclusion of uh, an index like MSCI 
um, and even compare it to um, the other index, big index provider, FTSE, where you know fundamental disagreements exist over whether Korea, for example, is a, a developed or an emerging market. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it is driven by um, wanting to sell index products. And as far as I can see, it's not really driven by trying to categorize countries correctly into their stage of development. So it, it ends up creating massive discrepancies in, in uh, emerging versus frontier or emerging versus developed. Um, and those discrepancies, given the amount of passive money involved, and I think something like 80% of flows into emerging markets over the last uh, six or seven years have been passive. Um, creates huge mispricing. And that's really where we think the opportunity set is. The, the argument for or against emerging markets is not something we get involved in very much because there are elements of emerging markets you want to own and elements of developed markets you don't. It's really a question of where the mispricings are. And it's these index, um, th this level of index exposure and, in, and, and index flows um, that have created much bigger mispricings across much of EM than have been in existence for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, so uh, I mean, in other words, for you, it's it's absolutely the opposite. It's not that those indices define the universe. They actually end up as a um, counterproductive um, consequence. They end up creating even more opportunity than there was before because of that mispricing. That's definitely been the case. I mean, if you, if you look at um, the emerging market index is evolution over the last 20 years. You went from a situation where China was 5% and uh, you had quite a few big 5% type markets to a situation today where the top six markets are about 83%. Now, that's created an opportunity set as defined by MSCI or even, uh, even FTSE, where most fund managers have to try and beat that benchmark because that's what they set out to do and therefore only focusing on those top six markets. And that's creating a lot more opportunity than there used to be in the other 26 markets plus 26 frontier markets. Um, and we've seen that. I mean, if you, if you just look at the statistics going back, as I say, 20 years, you see countries like um, Mexico and, and Malaysia, for example, featuring 20 years ago as very big emerging markets. They haven't necessarily got smaller, but a lot of the bigger China, Korea, Taiwan, particularly, um, and uh, and India have got uh, bigger and bigger and assumed the rest of uh, the emerging market universe. And what hasn't happened alongside that is proper management of when a country becomes uh, developed, for example. Um, yeah, if you look at some of the countries that are classified as developed markets today, and you put Korea and Taiwan alongside, um, it makes no logical sense. Um, just look at southern, some of the southern European countries that are classified as developed, for example. So um, this has created a kind of big opportunity set where um, investors are, are not looking and are not incentivized to look and um, has created a, a universe of probably 50 plus markets, which we don't think are generally accurately priced. And, and so at Fiera Capital, how would you kind of describe your approach to identifying the best opportunities in, in that long tail of kind of uh, under scrutinized, under looked at uh, emerging markets um, in terms of you know, identifying them, making money out of them? 
I think the, the first thing is to go back to my sort of original point about why we invest in emerging markets. And so first thing is we're looking for growth and, and obviously real growth or US dollar hard currency growth. Um, and if you look around the world today with the emerging market universe, there are lots of areas that are growing and there are lots of areas that are struggling. Um, you know, take uh, one of the larger markets, South Africa, among the, the, the strugglers. We see no coherent argument for putting money in South Africa because particularly in the domestic market, um, because the issues that are providing headwinds to growth are still too large to overcome. However, there are a lot of parts of the world, and I'll just mention a few, the Middle East, for example, where they're going through probably the biggest transformation economically, politically, and socially than we've seen since in emerging markets since the Berlin Wall fell. Um, you've got South Asia, which is parts of South Asia, Vietnam, Philippines, um, and uh, Indonesia catching up with North Asia to do there, assuming the economic and political um, processes and structures are similar to North Asia. There's no reason why that can't happen. And you have a lot of markets, countries such as Greece, which is a massive turnaround story over the last uh, four or five years. Um, you have strongly growing countries in Eastern Europe, despite the geopolitical headwinds like Romania and, uh, and, and Poland, um, where you can still get this excess growth that makes you want to go and invest outside of your home country and take that uh, extra risk, if you like, um, from not being as familiar with the countries as the, as you are with your home country. The next part of the process, if you like, is to find companies that are growing their US dollar earnings. If you look at pretty much any chart or any correlation of stock market performance, the biggest correlation factor is US dollar earnings growth. And so what we're trying to do is find regions, countries that are growing strongly, and within that, find companies that are generating high US dollar earnings growth. And because of the kind of under-researched, under-owned nature of many of these markets, we're actually buying that excess growth on a cheaper valuation than emerging markets or than big emerging markets or, or developed markets. So where, where you have some possibility or, or probability of a, a revaluation um, from other investors realizing that you have a strongly growing economy, strongly growing companies, and that this is a, an investment area that needs to be looked at more closely. And you will see that played out in, in many cases around emerging markets and indeed uh, developed markets. And it does play back into the indices and the way that most investors invest. Yeah, to give you a kind of extreme example right now, the Middle East has come from zero in 2014 to about eight and a half percent of the global emerging market index. Most um, or the, the average active global emerging market fund manager has less than two percent of their assets in the Middle East. Now, there are I'm not, I'm not trying to make uh, an argument one way or the other as to whether that's the uh, the right decision or not. But clearly that level of underweight, if, if this level of economic growth and earnings persist, will be closed because investors will start to lose money. Um, and that is always the biggest uh, biggest way or the, or the biggest forerunner of, uh, of inflows and closing this kind of uh, underweight gap. And the same thing happens with, um, with overweights as well. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of places out there where um, investors are, are not focused. The last four years have seen massive change on a scale that is difficult to comprehend unless you're going and visiting these places and looking at the rate of change. Um, and that's providing opportunities outside of the big six markets 
I wouldn't rule those big six markets out either. I think there are a lot of opportunities there as well that are that are overlooked. Um, if the uh, if if the country and, and the stocks that are growing very quickly and have been growing very quickly don't fit in with the last MSCI reclassification, then again you get a lot of uh, stocks in uh, in in some of these big emerging markets that um, exhibit so sort of these under under researched, under owned, undervalued type characteristics. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, you've you've explained really well your kind of process going into these markets and going into these stocks. Could you explain a little bit uh, about the other side, which is when do you judge is the right time to exit some of your best investments? Um, the exit is based very much on valuation. Um, again, we don't take a, a view on whether a market is emerging or frontier or developed. Um, our view very much is that this is an opportunity set and the opportunity is is over when our price target is met, and um, that is the right time to sell out. I, I think there's probably been two massive mistakes money losers in emerging markets over the last 30 years that have consistently destroyed value. One of them is is looking for the cheapest stock in a bad market, um, and uh, we have a very strict exclusion policy for countries that we don't think are investable. And the other is owning very high quality stocks at the wrong valuation. And we've seen so many examples of that phenomenon over the years. And, and I, I think, for example, a large part of the Indian market is exhibiting that now. Um, I wouldn't have an argument with anyone that said India was going to be the fastest growing emerging market in the world for the next 10 years of, of, of the major market. Um, I, I would say there's never been a 10-year period in Indian history um, where everything has, uh, has, has run smoothly and, and the equity market is pretty much pricing a perfect 10 years. So... It's it's a question of not when uh, when do you sell a market, but when do you sell the stocks? And we base that very much on what for each stock, what is our fair value and what is our exit price. And a, a different question, um, and this applies more to the smaller emerging markets, is how do you deal with the issue of trading liquidity? So even though there may be awesome opportunities in some of the smallest markets, they can also be markets that are quite thinly traded. Does that alter the risk you attach to those investments, the time frame you think about when making those investments? How do you handle that issue of, of what can be, at times, much lower levels of liquidity in the smaller markets? Um, I mean, we, we've always handled it through capacity constraints on the product. Um, and the, the history of our, our team is that um, the global funds that we manage are all been um, seeded and are all heavily, heavily invested by the team. Um, and uh, this gives us um, much more reward for performance than it does for asset gathering. Um, and, and I think, again, we've seen that the mistakes made many, many times, and particularly in the frontier market space over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, where um, when frontier markets were in vogue, let's say in 2015, 2016, there were funds that uh, gathered assets up to $4 billion um, in size. We set our capacity limit at $550 million and we've never gone past it. Um, and very simply, um, the, the key, yeah, the one key to, to making money in these markets is to find the, uh, the winners. The other key is to make sure you can sell when, uh, when things reverse. Yeah, there is a reason why countries are classified as frontier or smaller emerging. Um, they have the same length of history as any other country in the world. 
but um, there's been something in the recent past of the, that country that um, either politically or economically that has not been conducive to the capitalist system. And in the early stages of any reform cycle, things can go wrong. When you're building the institutions that have taken you know, 100, 150 years to, to uh, fully form in, in some countries, um, and you're three or four years into um, that institutional build, that, that institution building in, in uh, an emerging market, things can go wrong. You know, political decisions can get overturned, the wrong political party can be in power, and you have to be able to change your mind. So the, the second key to investing in these markets is retaining the ability to change your mind. And you can only do that really by limiting your... When you talk about limiting the appropriate size of assets allocated to, to, this, to this universe, do you think there's an argument for also um, restraining the amount of liquidity in your own fund? Because um, one of the contradictions I always feel that's there is some of the markets that, that we look at are, you know, can be small, can be thinly traded, but the funds that are offering exposure to them offer their own investors sometimes you know, daily liquidity. And, and that seems, is that a bit of a mismatch in your eyes? Um, we've run uh, daily liquid funds in this region since uh, 2009. And we've never had an issue with liquidity because we have um, capacity constrained um, products. I would say generally that it is a mismatch because it's, it's a, simply a duration mismatch. You know, equities have effectively infinite duration and uh, we have, like most people, daily dealing funds. Um, in an ideal world, we would want uh, closed-end funds. Um, I think that's the best structure for managing emerging market or any less liquid asset. Um, but uh, most investors, for historic reasons, um, have shied away in the recent past from closed-end funds. So... Um, it's uh, it's a tricky one. It's something that we uh, kind of wrestle with uh, every day. But um, as yet, and I, and I think this has largely been um, influenced by by trust, if you like. I don't think the uh, invest investment community has built up enough trust to start launching significant closed-end funds again. Well, Dominic, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you for you know sharing your experiences from uh, what I, I hope you don't mind me saying is a long history in this asset class um, and you know some of your um, kind of day-to-day -day, uh, you, know, you know what you confront what you're confronted with day-to-day -day. Um, it's been terrific to have you on and with that I shall draw this uh, episode of the Telemer Emerging Market podcast to a close. Just leaves me to say once again, uh, thank you for listening in. This has been Hasnan Malik from Telemer, and I've been joined by Dominic Bocker Ingram from Fiera Capital. Thank you, and see you next time. This podcast is provided for information purposes and represents the personal opinions of the speakers. It is not an offer or solicitation for investment in any securities, nor should it be regarded as investment advice. Telemer Limited does not offer or provide personal advice and no mention of a particular security in this podcast constitutes a recommendation to buy, sell or hold that or any security, portfolio of securities or enter any transaction or investment strategy. 
nor is any such mention an indication that any investment is suitable for any specific person.